90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes. They absolutely fought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. And stops anybody down. He brought the whole goal down. Matumbo embraces the ball in the unlikely upset. They're on their feet. A new NBA assist king, John Stockton. The crowd going crazy. To Michael, three, two, Michael, firing! Welcome everyone, this is the 90s Basketball Show. I am Brian Swain, and you are, well, you are who you are, and I'm glad you're here. And you have picked a great episode to tune into, I can promise you that much. My guest, Jim McElvain, played seven seasons in the NBA from 1994 to 2001, he was second-round draft pick of Washington in 1994 and played two seasons with the Bullets, as they were called then. And uh, he then went on to play two years for the Seattle Supersonics and another three seasons with the New Jersey Nets. He's got some great stories from his time in the NBA, but what's really interesting about Jim are his interests beyond basketball, and he shares some real candid perspectives on how being an NBA player was for him. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jim McElvain. Jim, when I have guests on, I always like to get memories of uh, players from your era. But uh, one of the other things I like to do, too, is catch up with what you're doing today. And you are involved with a lot of cool things today. So I think I will start with that. One of the things you're doing, actually, is you're usually used to being on the other side of this. You have your own podcast, Mark Men. Yeah, I am. And uh, it's probably not a traditional type of podcast. I kind of did it for selfish reasons. I have a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son, and I just turned 48. So I think the chances of me getting to know my grandkids uh, from those children is probably not going to be very good. You know, and, and I know what that was like growing up because my father was born in 1930. I never knew my grand my grandfather on his side. I knew my grandmother until she passed when I think I was eight years old. And then uh, I didn't really know my grandparents on my mother's side. My father, my grandfather passed before I was born, and, and my grandmother passed when I was so young. I never had any memory of her. So um, I, I contacted a classmate of mine, John Scott Lewinsky from Marquette University, which is how he came up with the marked men name. Um, and I asked him if he wanted to do a podcast and he kind of had an interest in it. And so we put one together and, and it's kind of a men's lifestyle podcast, but a lot of it is um, talking to people that I know that I've gotten to know through various things. Like I just interviewed my, my next door neighbor in Florida, Dan Nickens, who's uh, I, John calls him an, an adventurer, which I think John is, he's an adventurer and a, a, a pilot, a retired businessman. He has more hours logged in a Sea Ray seaplane than anyone else in the world. And he's flown across the Australian continent. He's flown up the Mississippi River. He's flown out to the West Coast from Florida. And so we had a fascinating conversation, but um, that's just one of many that I've had that I wanted to record and document. So my grandkids and maybe their kids or grandkids 
get to know me just a little bit and know the people that I was hanging out with because I would, I don't know what I'd pay, but I'd, I'd love to buy a conversation that my grandfather in Chicago had in the 1920s when he was playing trombone in, in a jazz band somewhere downtown. Or, you know, just get, get a little glimpse into the life that they led, you know, pre-World War II, post-World War I, what was it like for them? And, and I'm sad that I never got the opportunity to meet them and, and really get to know them. So I'm hoping uh, if, if nobody else listens to my podcast, maybe some of my grandkids will and, and they'll get to learn a little bit about Grandpa Jim. That really is a remarkable concept behind this. When did you guys start it? A couple of years ago. Um, I was doing the uh, play, uh, the color commentary for Marquette Radio for the basketball team, and I was getting ready to move to Florida, so I, I had to retire from doing the radio, and, and it wasn't like to fill a void or anything. It just seemed like it worked well timing-wise where I'd have a little bit more time to do something like that. And so sometimes John and I get together and have just a discussion, and sometimes he interviews somebody, sometimes I interview somebody, sometimes we interview somebody together. Uh, and I've I've had the good fortune to do some pretty cool ones like uh, Danny Thompson, um, who just set the world record for the fastest piston-driven vehicle on the Bonneville Salt Flats. I actually interviewed him on the Bonneville Salt Flats on the Salt. Um, I can't remember if it was either right before or right after he set the record, but it was it was right you know it was that week, and it was such a cool. It was like being on a different planet <laughs> and and interviewing one of the most famous people in motorsports. It was kind of a neat experience for me as kind of a car geek. To, to be there and, and see that and experience it. I think anybody who's in the cars probably has Bonneville somewhere on their bucket list. Perfect segue there, Jim. As you mentioned, you're a car geek. I have to ask you a lot about that. This is very, very heavily today what you're involved in. It seems like it's a very a great personal interest of yours, but also something you've been able to get involved with career-wise. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, my goal when I was playing in the NBA you know, the irony of being an NBA player is that people give you access to all kinds of stuff and they give you free stuff that they don't really need to because you're in the NBA. You make a bunch of money. You can afford to buy it or you can afford to go there on your own. But because you're in the NBA, that's a cool factor, I guess. And they want to have you around or they want to have you wearing their stuff or using their stuff. And then once you retire, former NBA doesn't carry nearly the same uh, weight as current NBA player. So um, I knew the gravy train was coming to the station and I wanted to do something with cars for the rest of my life. I just wanted to get somebody else to pay for it because I'm kind of a cheapskate. And uh, I somehow finagled my way into being a contributing editor at several different car magazines before I even retired. Um, I was hired and the first feature story I did was on Fred Dreyer, the former NFL player, who uh, had a 9C1, uh, the B4C, 9C1 uh, Chevrolet Caprice that he bought from the Rhode Island State Highway Patrol. He started a TV series in the 80s called Hunter. It was a kind of a cop show. And it was basically a car that looked like the, the car that Fred Dreyer drove in the TV series. And uh, I, I ended up interviewing him for that while he was eating dinner at some Italian restaurant in Southern California. And, Got to learn a little bit about the car, car culture of Southern California from him when he grew up in the in the peak of it, you know, in the 50s and 60s and was going to Lions Drag Strip and and he would drive cars cross country and he lived in a the van outside Giants Stadium when he was playing for them. It was kind of a 
fascinating interview. I didn't get to use a lot of the stuff in the, the feature um, that appeared in GM High Tech Performance Magazine, but, but that was kind of my foray into the automotive aftermarket. And then through that um, experience, I got to know some of the, the companies that advertise in the magazines and uh, eventually got hired by one of them, Optima Batteries, to uh, work for them. And I do all kinds of stuff for them now. Well, this is really fascinating to me, Jim, on the, on the couple ends here that I want to explore. Myself as someone who has a background in writing, where did that passion come from? Because you were actually doing this while you were still in the NBA, that first interview you were, you were talking about. Yeah, that interview, and I, I, had, a, I had a regular feature. In G, I, I worked a lot for GM High Tech Performance Magazine, and I had a regular feature called uh, Cyber Cruising where I, I reviewed websites that I thought people who were into late model fuel injected GM cars and trucks would be interested in. And I did the uh, reader's rides. I did event coverage in the summertime and, and I wrote feature stories. In fact, I just got off the phone earlier today with that editor, Johnny Hunkins, who originally hired me to work on that title. He, he eventually went on to be the editor of popular hot rodding. So I wrote for them. And then, uh, he went on to be the editor of Hot Rod and then Carcraft and, and that went away. And now he's kind of back working in the Hot Rod family. Um, and so I've, I've kept in touch with him over the years. He kind of opened the door for me to, to get started in that. And um, I was never really that good in the math and the sciences in school. I was okay, you know, enough to, to move to the next level or whatever. But uh, I did a little bit better with writing. So the writing came easier to me. The technical aspect of it was a little more challenging and actually after I retired um, I enrolled in the automotive tech program for ASC certification at Blackhawk Community College. I think I was the first Marquette graduate to ever enroll in the automotive tech program there and the, my guidance counselor uh, his sons played at Virginia Tech. Uh, there were twins who played um, in Janesville and uh, he advised me to audit the class because I really didn't care if I was an ASC certified mechanic so I audited it. I, I paid for the textbook. and I, I don't know if I paid like 45 or 50 bucks a semester just to audit the class. So I could sit in on the class. I could do all the work. I just couldn't take the tests to be ASC certified. And so I audited it for a couple of semesters and, and really helped improve my base of knowledge for how cars work. Because I had 16 years of a Catholic education. And the closest I came to an auto shop class, we had a nun at St. Catherine's High School, Sister Rotarius who taught know your car. And by the time I got there, uh, it was just myself and my best friend, Tony Garbo, whose family owns Wisconsin's largest, or their oldest Lincoln Mercury dealership. And uh, we were the only two guys that were interested enough to take the class that didn't have any college credits. And she eventually dropped it because of lack of interest. So um, I just didn't have that knowledge base. My dad wasn't a gearhead. He worked for Walker Muffler and Pipe, but he was a, an accountant and he, you know, in the industry, we call it a do-it-yourself or a do-it-for-me. He was a do-it-for-me guy. He hired out the work to, on, on the vehicles that we owned to have it done. And, and so I kind of had to learn a little bit later in life, and I'm still learning. I mean, there's, there's people that have forgotten more about taking apart and adjusting Holly four-barrel carburetors than I'll ever hope to know. So if it wasn't necessarily something that your dad was into, where did the passion come from? Where was it ignited within yourself? Well, I've always liked cars. Um, I, I've, I think a lot of people tried to push me towards basketball and I found myself gravitating towards things that weren't basketball. Not like it was the polar opposite, but I always liked cars, always loved boats. I loved the water, loved surfing and skiing and 
uh, water skiing and, and a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily jive well with basketball because they want you to stay in a gym and they don't want you to blow a knee out snow skiing or something like that. So I, I had to put on the back burner a lot of my passions when I was focusing on basketball. But I always try to look at the big picture and say, in, in the long run, I'm going to get to spend a lot of years doing a lot of cool stuff. If I can just focus these few short years on basketball, for me, you know, it was basically about 15 years between uh, high school, college, and, and NBA. So when you started writing, and you're still playing in the NBA at that point in time, what did you find yourself enjoying more? Was something basketball seemed more like a job, writing seemed more like a passion? Basketball always seemed like a job to me. And, you know, the dirty secret that doesn't get told often enough is there's a lot of really tall people that play basketball because they're really good at it and not because they're passionate about it <laughs> and not because they love the game and you'd think it would be a natural marriage, but it isn't always. It just happens to be you, you ended up in this really well-suited body for basketball and you can tell exactly who they are because, you know, when, when they get done as players, if they really love the game and they're passionate about it, like my good friend, Joe Wolf, he goes on to be a coach and coaches for many years because he loves the game, loves being around it, loves teaching it, loves, loves the experience of it, and that, that just wasn't my thing. And so um, as soon as I was done with basketball, you know, I did the radio. I liked being around it. Um, I certainly enjoyed the experience with my partner, Steve the Homer True. He's fantastic play-by-play guy. But I loved not having to go to practice. I loved not having to put in tons of work. I would scout the teams that we were playing and try to understand who they were, but it wasn't the same level of time commitment and mental focus and dedication that being a player or a coach uh, involved. So, so doing the radio and, and a few TV opportunities was kind of really well suited for, for how much I wanted to be involved with the game once I was done as a player. Um, and I don't know if I was ever passionate about writing. I was just good at it and I enjoyed the subject matter and I still do. Um, I was just that I live right next to road America, which is one of the best, uh, road course racetracks in the world in Wisconsin and I was just there for a couple of days last week uh, working an event that Optima Battery sponsors the search for the ultimate streetcar series which is a tv series I helped produce and uh, before that I was in Arnold Nebraska in the middle of um, the Sandhills for an open road race and before that I was at Atlanta Motorsports Park for another search for the ultimate streetcar event and that's, you know, that's during coronavirus, and, and I've kind of curtailed my travel schedule a little bit. I won't travel again until next month. I go down to New Orleans for another Ultimate Streetcar event, and then in between that, I'll, I'll just sneak over to Road America like the Audi Club is running today, and there's a Porsche series that's racing this weekend, so I'll just, I'll drop in with my camera and, and snap some shots and maybe do some some live streaming for the Optimal Batteries social media channels when I'm in there just to show people what's going on at the track. That's really cool, Jim, because I think you, you see it maybe more so now and maybe it's just more accepted now with professional athletes where they have a diverse interests that they're involved in. Like what was your teammates and, and your coaches, how did they feel about you having all these other interests outside of basketball? Well, I don't think I was really unique in that regard. I think a lot of guys have interests outside the game and, and you see it today. You've, you all, you know, a bunch of guys want to start their own clothing line or they want to start their own record label or they're 
own movie production company. You know, they, they grab it. A lot of people, whether it's, you know, entertainers, and I put athletes in that group, um, they, they gravitate towards the attractive, like really high curb appeal type of activities that seem like a lot of fun on the outside, but when you get to know people who, who work in them every day, they, you understand the grind that it really is. And so I never, I never got caught up in, you know, this fantasy that I was going to be able to pick the next big star and produce them into a, a singing sensation or a rock group sensation. I didn't, I didn't think I, I had the artistic eye to really be involved in television or film or, or the interest, but I always liked cars and um, I like boats and I do some stuff with, with that as well, but not at, not to the degree that I do with cars and, 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 you know, I, I kind of wanted to prove myself outside of basketball, if that makes any sense, because um, sometimes, like I said, a lot of doors get open because you're a basketball player, but I kind of wanted to put those credentials to the side and, and try to earn my keep and earn everything that I've accomplished in the automotive industry, just based on my own merits of, of what I'm, capable of doing and my knowledge base and my skills and my ability. And I, and I think I've carved a, a nice little niche for myself. I'm not anywhere near the biggest name in the automotive aftermarket, but um, I've, I've established a, a solid career in it and, and I really enjoy it. Fortunately, I don't have to depend on it to, to keep the lights on or anything, but I really enjoy what I do. I enjoy the people I work with and, and work for. And um, it's, I think it's sometimes a challenge for professional athletes when, when you think about where they're at in that industry, you know, as, as a pro basketball player, you're one of the best couple hundred basketball players in the whole world. And it's going to be really hard for you to transition into any other industry where you'll be in that elite company where you're one of the best couple hundred in the world. Very few people do that in any professional sport. Um, some are capable of it because they're, they're such high level workers and thinkers and doers and people but um I, I didn't come into the automotive aftermarket thinking i was going to take over the world and, and i think you, you see that attitude sometimes uh with the invincibility that professional athletes carry with them i just i want to have fun with cars i want to be around them i enjoy the people who are passionate about them i want to spend time with them and i just i found a way to do it and get somebody else to pay for it that transition you speak of there how did that go for you it was, you know, the, the professional transition was smoother for me than the personal transition. I ended up, um, my, my ex-wife filed for divorce a couple of years after I retired. And, you know, I, I'm still trying to sort that situation out and understand it. Um, but professionally, it was, it was pretty easy because I didn't have this you know, financial situation where I had to go out and work. So, I just kept doing the magazine stuff. I just did more of it. And I wrote for more magazines and we'd make little vacations out of it. We'd go out to Las Vegas and I'd cover the B-Body Nationals at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And then um, my wife and kids would hang out at a Ritz-Carlton for the week. And I would drive up to cover the Pony Express 130 open road race in Ely, Nevada. Then I'd come back down, spend a few more days with my wife and kids. Maybe we'd go over to Disneyland and spend a few days there. So. Um, the car stuff, you know, the event coverage that I was doing out there and I'd shoot a couple of feature cars and write some features 
that really kind of, you know, paid for my family's trip out there and, and our vacation stuff. So it was kind of like, I'd, I'd do a little work in, throw a little work in that didn't really feel like work. And we just kind of see the countryside. And so that, that worked for a couple of years. And then, then my ex-wife, I guess, didn't find that too appealing anymore or me or both or some combination. And that was that. But um, professionally, it was, was easy for me to transition into the automotive aftermarket. And um, once, once uh, I was ready to get back involved with it, because I did take a hiatus for personal reasons, um, you know, I wanted to spend time around my older kids as they were growing up focus on them and I did that and then once I felt like I was in a place where I was comfortable enough to do it it was it was a relatively easy transition for me to get back into the automotive industry working for Optima Batteries. Uh, your last season in the NBA was 2000-2001 with the Nets. What made you decide at that point that it was time to move along? Well I was typically breaking something or tearing something every year that I played and most years I was able to postpone surgery until after the season was over. And, and, you know, some guys did that and tried to gut it out and help the team as much as they could. And other guys just physically couldn't do it. And then other guys were you know, looking for an excuse to not play and surgery is as good an excuse as anything, I guess. So um, I tried my best to play through stuff. I played through a shoulder injury for part of the, the shortened lockout season and finally had to get the surgery on that because I just couldn't get any sleep at night. It was too painful. And then uh, my last year, 2000, 2001, man, I was, I was running up the court and didn't, didn't put two and two together until long after this happened. But my calf ruptured and my Achilles partially tore when I was just running up the court. And, and it seemed like a, a weird freak injury. And I later found out that there is a correlation between um, I think it was Zithromax or something like that, that I was taking because I was, you know, always had upper respiratory infections when I was in the wintertime, um, that it kind of compromised the integrity of your, um, um, your ligaments and tendons and made you more vulnerable to tears and stuff like that. And I don't think anybody at that time had put that connection together. And so, I ruptured that calf, partially tore that Achilles. There was no surgery for it. You just had to immobilize it and let it sit. So I missed the end of that season. It was probably a couple of weeks away from coming back when the season ended. And then uh, Jamie Fike was a teammate of mine and had real bad bone spurs on, in, behind his Achilles tendon. And they got bad enough that he said, I, I just, I got to, I can't play like this anymore. I got to get him taken out. And the doctor said, if, if you cut your Achilles, you may never play again. And he said, look, I, I can't play now. So you have to do it. So they cut the Achilles to get his bone spurs out and Jamie never played again. And he had just signed a pretty big deal. And so the Nets had to pay that out. And I think they were concerned uh, that I would come back into training camp because I was playing pickup games at Marquette in the summer. Um, and I would come into training camp and an hour into practice or a day or a week or whatever would in, I'd, I'd be on the court and I'd rupture that calf and tear that Achilles again and that'd be the end of it. And they'd have to pay me out in full. Um, so they offered me on September 10th, uh, 2001, the day before 9-11, they offered to buy me out on, on the remainder of my contract. Um, and it, just, it seemed like the right time. Um, 
I could have I could have declined. And I've been on teams where guys um, were were asked to accept buyouts and they declined, and then the teams made it really miserable for them to be there. And it was it was bad for them. It was bad for their teammates and the coaches because it was just a bad situation all around. I didn't want to be that guy. I knew New Jersey was trying to make changes. They were bringing Jason Kidd in to be um, coach, and 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 I. I knew they were headed in a place that didn't have me in their plans, and I didn't want to hold them back from success. I always tried to be a team player, and, um, you know, I thought the buyout offer was fair. And uh, so so I took it and could have kept playing for somebody else, but the way the buyouts in the NBA work is if, if you make any money playing basketball for somebody else, that relieves – the buyout team from paying you whatever that amount of money is. So unless somebody was willing to pay me more than the Nets were paying me on my buyout, uh, and nobody was, I'd probably play for a veteran minimum. The only way I'd make money above and beyond, um, I basically the only way I wouldn't be playing for free is if the team I was on made the playoffs. And then I'd make playoff money, which if I went deep in the playoffs, it would have to be probably uh, conference finals or NBA finals would offset the expense of moving to a new town and renting a home and, you know, kind of setting up a new place to live and play in the NBA. So um, it's, it's a pretty effective system at keeping guys from playing after they accept buyouts. And so I just, I didn't play again after that, even after the buyout expired, I guess I could have gone and played in Europe or somewhere like that. But at that point I wanted to spend time with my younger kids who were, who were growing up. Here's Hawk into the lane. Breaks the pressure to McElvain for the one-handed hammer. Oh, my goodness. He looked like the hammering man down there in front of the art museum. He just put the anvil down, baby. Jimmy McElvain. He dunked on two guys, Smith Davis. Both of you, take this. Nearly two decades on now from when you last played What's your perspective on your basketball career? How do you kind of contextualize it within, I guess, uh, the story of your life and where you are today? It just, to be honest, it feels like it gets more surreal with every year that passes. Because in the, in the scope of your life, it's such a short amount of time that you play in the NBA. And you're so young. And you kind of know what you're doing, but you really don't. And like the old saying, youth is wasted on the young. The experience of playing in the NBA will always be wasted on, on, on the guys who play in the NBA because you'll never really fully appreciate it until you can't really experience it anymore unless you're Vince Carter. Maybe he can because he played forever um, or Dirk Nowitzki. But it, it was such a, you know, seven years seems like a long time, but it goes by in the blink of an eye. And it seems so far away and so distant now it's it, – it, you know, and, and when I watch the NBA now, I, I don't relate to it. I know people who are still involved in it, obviously, but um, I, I don't feel like I understand the game like I did when I was a player. I, I still understand the college game a little bit more, but even as I remove myself from doing radio there, I don't feel like I'm still connected to the college game in the same way. And it's bizarre to me to see the way technology has changed everything and that, you know, your legacy – as a player now or a former player is really defined by Google. And, you know, people are going to put your name into a search bar and look you up and whatever pops up, that's, that's going to be your legacy. And, and thank, 
thank Al Gore for creating the internet and those fantastic guys <laughs> in France and wherever they are that are posting those highlight clips of me blocking Michael Jordan or dunking on Rick Smith's stuff. I didn't, honestly, I didn't even remember that I did that stuff. I mean, I knew I made good plays against some good players from time to time, but I didn't really remember specifics of it. And then these, I don't even know where they find these tapes. They dig them up and they put them on YouTube. And it's like, holy cow, I did do that, didn't I? That's pretty cool. And, and you know, they, everybody wants views on their YouTube channel. So unless you're on the receiving end of that stuff, um, nobody's going to show your low lights. And even if you're on the receiving end, it's not like the video is going to be titled, you know, Sean Kemp dunking on Jim McElvain. It's just going to be Sean Kemp monstrous dunks. And so uh, your legacy is a little bit protected in that regard. Um, there's a downside to it because, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of clickbait articles that are just, you know, retreads of something somebody else wrote five years ago, which was copied off of something somebody else wrote five years before that. And, um, so, you know, there's, it goes both ways, but uh, the YouTube videos are, are, are pretty cool. Um, I really appreciate that part of it. And, and I've promised all those guys, if, if we ever end up in the same city anywhere in the world, I'm buying them dinner because I, I really appreciate the fact that they took time to find those videos and, and cut them up and edit them and put them out on the internet and tag me in them so I could steal them again. That's pretty cool. Well, talking about some of those highlights, Jim, now I read somewhere that your first basket in the NBA was a dunk on Shaq. Is that correct? So my, our first, the first game I played in was at Orlando and Shaquille was guarding me technically. Um, and Calvert Chaney drove baseline and the smart basketball play to make when Calvert Chaney drives baseline and I'm on the opposite block is to leave me because I've never scored a point in the NBA and I'm a rookie and, you know, it's just who knows what's going to happen. So Shaq left me to go cut off Calvert Chaney on the baseline. And I don't think he ever bothered to try to come back and recover. It just, you know, Calvert saw me open, passed it to me, and I got to dunk it. And as luck would have it, all the trading card companies have their photographers out or they're, they're hiring photographers to, to shoot all the rookies in the first few games in case guys get hurt or whatever. And a guy captured that dunk and it ended up on one of my basketball cards. And I knew exactly what it was because it showed up a couple of weeks later in a hotel lobby. Somebody asked me to sign it. I hadn't even seen it yet. I'm like that, that was my first NBA basket. That's so cool that they put that on a basketball card. I hope you uh, blowing that photo up and turned it into a poster. Well, honestly, Shaq's not even in the picture. And uh, I, I've never really done any of that stuff. Um, when my eligibility was up at Marquette, they had some nice blown up frame pictures of all the players. And my roommate, uh, Rob Lagerman, and I went to the locker room in the basketball office and quickly stole every single one of them that maybe even had our hand in the corner of the picture. We took them all. So I've got a couple of those. Um, and I've, I've hung one or two of those up. There's a really talented artist, George Pollard, um, who did these things called portraits, where they took your photograph and then he did a pencil sketch of you to match the photograph and they hung them above our lockers at Marquette. And so I got a couple of portraits from George Pollard. Um, there's a, there's a team poster that they had us sign when I was in Washington, my rookie season. 
And it's kind of funny. We, we practiced at, in the old gym at Bowie State University that was so bad, Bowie State wouldn't even practice in there. Ceiling tiles falling down, no air conditioning in the summertime. And so they brought in all this stack of huge posters, and they wanted everybody on the team to sign them. And we spent like an hour signing all these posters. <clears throat> and then they framed up a poster and, and autographed poster and gave it to each of us. I don't know if any of the other guys on the team kept theirs. I kept mine. And um, Rex Chapman and Kenny Walker, uh, Rex was actually, Kenny lived at Rex's house. Uh, they were friends from Kenticky and, and, and actually lived in my house his rookie year in New Jersey. And that happens sometimes. And, and it's kind of a good thing when you're a rookie to have a relationship like that with somebody. And it, even when you're a veteran, you know, it, sometimes, you know, idle, idle time is, is a dangerous thing. So when you got a teammate around, it's, it's helpful. But uh, Rex and Kenny were two of the biggest characters on the team, real fun guys to be around. Still really enjoy the heck out of those guys. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a monotonous task to sign these posters one after the other over and over and over again. So, um, and I tell this story, and, and if I didn't have the poster, nobody would believe me. Rex and, and Kenny started drawing parts of their anatomy on, on posters and stuff. And you can imagine what they were drawing. And, like, it's in this position when you're taking that shot. Oh, I think it's more like that. And I'm, I'm looking at them at the time, like, come on, guys. Some kids are going to have that, and they're going to hang it up in their bedroom. And, and they just didn't think anything of it. Well, I got one of those anatomy posters framed, and it's hanging up in my, my rumpus room. So. Um, it's a Rex Chapman original. It is. Yeah, kind of fun. And and it was neat. We didn't not everybody was there that day for the autographs, so we didn't get everybody's autographs on the posters. In fact, I think Chris Weber had already uh gone down with a shoulder injury. Um, but we got most of the guys to sign the autograph. I think Scott Skiles was injured for the season. It might have been I can't remember if it was my rookie or my second year. Whatever it was, it was when I was in the with the bullets and, and it was cool. So I've got that poster hanging up. Um, or I haven't actually hung it up yet, but I will. And, and that's about it. You know, my wife played uh, on the national championship team for North Carolina. And so we've got some of her memorabilia and, you know, she's like me, she's not you know, super crazy about basketball, but I just, I think it's kind of cool for our kids to see that stuff. And once upon a time, we did some neat stuff that people thought was a big deal, even if you couldn't give two shakes about it now. So you know, we, it's nice to have some of that stuff around, but it certainly doesn't dominate our lives or every room of our house. McIlvain has shown with Mirosan out of the lineup that he is a valuable asset, especially defensively and blocking shots. He's already blocked five today, and he came into today's action having blocked 18 shots over the past three games. Your second season, 95-96 nine blocks in the game against the Bulls. This, of course, would be the 72 and 10 Bulls, who people now famously know from the last dance. Nine blocks against that team. I'm guessing the odds are at least one or two of those has got to be against Michael or Scotty? Yeah, probably. I don't honestly remember. I know one or two of them was probably against Jack Haley, which isn't nearly as impressive. Um, but, yeah, that it, when you watch the last dance – uh, I can't remember who it was, but somebody made reference to the fact that they had to play that final game against the Bullets, who was – and we we had a really good team that year that was just cursed with injury. Uh, Wilborn, Michael Wilborn and, and Tony Kornheiser, before they went national and big time on ESPN, they were local guys in D.C., and they called it the curse of the Bullet. They said no matter who you get, no matter how good – 
the team is on paper before the season starts, you know, after a certain point, you're not going to be above 40 or 45% winning percentage. And, and I hated that they were right those two years because we didn't, we weren't that far out of the playoff chase my second year. And we had some phenomenally talented guys. It just, everybody kept getting hurt. And we had Mark Price and he got hurt and Robert Pack and he got hurt. And Chris Weber and Juan Howard. And so George Mirasan ended up getting hurt. That's how I got the time play against the Bulls and came close to a triple double in that game. And, uh, you know, I was playing my heart out because you're always playing for something. Even if your team's not going to make the playoffs, you're on a team with guys whose contracts are, are coming up for renewal or they're expiring and they're going to be free agents. And you want to try to do your best to make your teammates look good so they have a good chance of being signed away by somebody else or re-signed by the team that you're on. And Tim Legler was one of those guys. Uh, Juwan Howard was one of those guys. Brent Price was one of those guys. Mitchell Butler, Doug Overton. So I was trying to, you know, set as good of screens as I could and be the best teammate that I could to, you know, you know, we're not playing for the playoffs, but, but we're playing to help each other, you know, further our careers. And so, you know, I played my heart out in that game and every other one that I got to start in George's absence. And it was really that small stretch of games after George went down and I got to play significant minutes that I was able to show what I was capable of doing if a team was willing to let me play significant minutes. And I, you know, that was amazingly enough for me, the only consistent opportunity I ever got to do that in my NBA career after that. I don't know if I, I ever played 30 minutes in a game after that second year in the NBA more than once or twice. And, you know, if I could play 35 minutes, I could put up solid numbers, but, you know, Short of that, it, it, was, it was tough for me to get my rhythm going, and, and it got to the point where um, I, you know, I looked realistically at the playing time I was being allocated, and I want to make the most of it. And if, if that meant I'd take a foul for Sean Kemp or, or a foul for uh, Jason Williams so they could stay in the game, I'd, I'd do that and didn't have any problem doing that because you know, I had my money. At that point, it was, for me, it was about trying to win basketball games, trying to win championships. And uh, I, I was willing to do whatever it took and didn't really care, you know, if, if it didn't reflect well on me as an, an individual in terms of what the stat sheet showed. And one other one I got to ask you about, um, you see it in the NBA today, big guys can step outside beyond the arc. They're, they're shooting threes all the time. It wasn't so common in your day. You actually made, you made one three-pointer in your career. Do you remember when it was? Sure do. We were playing the Denver Nuggets and, uh, George Carl and his staff, which included Terry Stotts and uh, Dwayne Casey, Bob Weiss, Tim Gergerich, probably the best staff top to bottom that I ever had the, the pleasure of playing for. Uh, they were pretty forward thinking. Sam Perkins was a teammate with me in Seattle, and he shot three-pointers regularly. And it was a part of our regular routine that we shot three-pointers in practice. And it was you know, the bigs at one end of the court and the, the smalls at the other end of the court. And it was Sam and I, because I guess he was perceived to be the best of the three-point shooting bigs, and I was perceived to be the worst against whoever else it was, you know, Steve Kepler, or I'm sorry, Steve Scheffler and Sean Kemp or, you know, whoever else, you know, Detlef Shrimp. And so, uh, yeah, I got, at least in practice, I got pretty good at it. And, and they felt comfortable enough that, I, I got the green light to shoot in games. And there were certain games 
or man, I, I thought for sure those shots were going down. So you'll only see those shots attempted in Seattle playing for George Carl because he, he wanted me to shoot them. And it was you know, so much of your success offensively, I think, in the NBA is tied directly to your confidence and, and the confidence that your coaching staff and your teammates have in, in your ability to, to perform. And they gave me the confidence to shoot threes. I didn't shoot a good percentage, but I like to think that every time I took one of those shots, it was a good shot that had a, had a chance of going in. And uh, one time it actually did. It wasn't like a, a you know last-second heave. It was in the flow of the game. They passed it to me, the three-point line, and, and I'd never made one, so why come out and contest me? And you leave me open, and I, and I knocked it down. That, that one might be – you'll have to throw the challenge out there to anybody if they have the clip of that to put it up on YouTube. I think it. I think it is on a YouTube clip somewhere. There's like a like a mixtape thing that mostly shows blocks and dunks, but then it shows like a three pointer or something, and and that was like the only one. Uh, and I again, big shout out and big thank you to all the people that post those videos on YouTube. I think they're fun to watch, and and trust me, the former players we watch them, we send them to each other and like, hey, did you see this one? Not too bad, huh? And and it's. We, we all think it's the coolest thing ever. It's, it's really nice. Jim, before I let you go, I'd, I'd like to ask if you have a favorite accomplishment or achievement or even just a favorite moment from your time in the NBA. Um, I really enjoyed various aspects of every part of every stop I made. Some of my absolute favorite teammates and lifelong friends were on that first bullets team and I still keep in regular contact with George Mirasan. Um, still keep in touch with some of the other guys, Rex Chapman and, and, and you know again through the benefit of Al Gore's internet, you know, I can keep in contact with Rex Chapman. I can keep in contact with Stephen Howard who I played against when he was at DePaul and then played with when we were in Seattle together. Um, so it's been really nice to those relationships that you you make with those people and, and that bond that you have just being there you know we're the way I look at it, you know just playing in the NBA not just making a roster in summer league not just being on a roster but never actually getting on the court because there's a lot of guys that can say both of those things I was I was on the Bulls summer league team or I was on the roster I never got to play you know just being on that mountain you know, it's, it's a mountain harder to get on than Everest and harder to reach. There's, there's more people that, that reach the top of Mount Everest every year than probably have ever played in the NBA. And, th and that might not be totally accurate, but it's not far from it if it's not accurate. Because, you know, when, when you look at the guys that played in the NBA, cumulatively, I don't even know if there's 10,000 people, you know. And, and it's such a rare thing to accomplish and you, you do it at such a young age when you really don't appreciate it I think just that whole experience it's you know of being able to do something that so few other people have ever been able to do or experience regardless of the era that it happened and I was so thrilled being in the retired players association to meet this guy Moose who played in the first NBA game ever he was playing for Toronto he was at the meeting in a, in a wheelchair and passed away a few years later and and you know just beyond floored to have Bill Walton come up and interview me for a TV thing they're doing for the Legends Conference where he referred to me as a, a legend. And I'm like, no, see, Bill, there's a lot of guys who play the NBA who weren't legends. And 
it's because of those guys that we can easily identify the true legends like Bill Walton. So I was just a guy who played in the NBA. I'm certain, I don't feel like I'm a legend because I was in the NBA, but it's such a unique experience that when you look, at, look around the world, you know, even within professional sports, there's only five guys playing basketball. There's nine guys on a baseball field, a bunch of guys playing football and, and hockey. And it's such a small fraternity. It's, it's just an honor and a privilege to be a part of it and to have experienced it for as long as I did, even if it was just one game. Man, it's, you know, you're, I never got to the top of the mountain. I never won a, Nash, uh, a world championship, but being on the mountain was one of the coolest things ever. And, and I appreciate it more each day. That's an incredible perspective to have, uh, Jim. I appreciate you taking the time to share some of your memories and, you know, really really getting into what it's like to be an athlete and, and to move on from that. I think some fascinating stuff. For people that want to check out everything you're up to now, I guess maybe first off, uh, how can they catch the Marked Men podcast? Uh, it's, it's, it's most places where yours probably is, like um, Google Play and iTunes Store and Stitcher and and uh, I, I Heart Radio Network or Podcast Network, it's on there as well. And uh, I'm at Jim McElvain, if you can figure out how to spell that. If you can't, Google will help you. At Jim McElvain on Twitter. And I have a Instagram that I update every once in a while, but that's kind of like 50% car pictures. So if, if you're not really into cars, you probably don't need to follow me on Instagram. Um, I have a YouTube channel buried somewhere on YouTube that maybe every couple of years I'll put a video on there. Um, and then uh, I have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash the real Jim McElvain. I have a Pinterest account as well, but you, nobody needs to follow me on there. I, I hardly ever go onto that. Um, but I, I do go on the Optimum Batteries Pinterest account and update that quite frequently. We actually have 18,000 followers on there and man we we get about four hundred thousand views a month on that if people do if there's i'm sure we got some gearheads out there listening if they want to read your stuff where can they check that out um i guess google's the easiest place to find it because the way the car magazines work they've been bought and sold and collected together so many times that um some of the stories that i've written that i come across now i'm not even given writing credit on it. Some of them I am. Um, but hotrod.com has a lot of my stuff because a lot of it has been moved on to hotrod.com for, I think it's hotrod.com for Hot Rod Magazine. Whatever Hot Rod Magazine's website is, I've written a bunch of stuff that's on there. I actually had my car featured in Hot Rod in January of this year. And that's on the interwebs. If you look up Jim McElvain's Cyclone, you'll find that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where a lot of the car stuff is. Some of it's just lost to the ages because it never made the jump from print to digital. So it'll, it'll live on in the, in the green Rubbermaid bins I've got sitting in my basement of magazines that my kids will probably, you know, sell on Craigslist for five bucks when, when I keel over and die and they're like, let's get rid of this junk. It's like, oh, each one of those magazines is worth like $70. They don't, they won't care. I care now. I don't even know if magazines will exist at that point in time. That's why they're going to be increasing in value. You know, you hold on to magazines. And, and I'm, you know, the funny thing is I have this cabin in Wisconsin that I've used as my home base for a couple decades now. And so every time I, I got traded or signed with a new team, you know, there's this shuffling of personal items like, hey, let's take that to the new house. Now let's leave that in Wisconsin. So I've got this basement that's accumulated 
like dozens and dozens of Rubbermaid bins. And now they got those big black and yellow Costco bins. I got a couple dozen of those things. And every summer I come up here and I try to make my way through as many of them as I can. And I just find all kinds of crazy, crazy memorabilia, like, and just stuff that for whatever reason I never threw away. And some, sometimes I see it, it's like, well, I'm, I'm not gonna throw that away. That's, that's the note Jerome Kersey wrote me when he wanted to keep in touch with me in the summer. And back in the day before email, he wrote down his address and his phone number. So I've, I've got on a scrap, you know, piece of paper from something. And, and so I've got stuff like that floating around and scouting reports. Man, have I got hundreds of scouting reports just stacked up. It's like I, I never threw one of them away because I was afraid to. You get fined on some teams if they found your scouting report. So it's like you're afraid to let them go. In fact, I'd tear my name off the corner of them. So if I did lose it, they wouldn't know it's mine. And so all mine are torn off the corners. And I've I got scouting reports all over the place from all the, the games we played. And I don't know, someday maybe I'll do something like that. Or, or maybe maybe I'll incorporate those into my podcast and read excerpts from scouting reports as part of a regular feature. You see, I think that'd be fascinating to do. I think if you read an anonymous scouting report and then some had somebody guess who it was, it, it, at least at least you didn't scratch your name on it and put like Rex Chapman on it or anything like that. You didn't. Well, Seattle, Terry Stotts put them together in Seattle and Terry was by far the best at it because we had like, full color cover pages on it and sayings from inspirational people and, you know, Bible verses and had tags like stickers like McIlvain. Put the McIlvain sticker on that one. So it wasn't even handwritten. When I was in New Jersey, then they, they hand wrote them. When I was in Washington, we didn't even have scouting reports, which floored me because we had them all through Marquette. When I was at Marquette, we had scouting we wrote the scouting reports when I was at Marquette. We had film sessions, and we, it was like a, a homework assignment. And then I, I got to, to Washington. It's like, there's no scouting reports? I'm like, nah, nah, we don't need them. We play the same people every year. And, and the coaches had, like, these stats that they bought from a stat service. I'm like, I'd like to look at those. Can I look at – can I get a copy? Nah, nah, nah. So, yeah, it was it, – to go from Washington where there was none of that to Seattle where – it was done to the nth degree. It was like night and day, and it was it was clear there were teams in the NBA at that time, and probably still is the case today, that had a clear competitive advantage because the franchises were willing to invest in little things like that that made a difference. That definitely, I'm sure, bore itself out if you look back to in the standings as well. So, Jim, thanks so much. Take care, and hope you get a chance to talk to you again in the future. Thank you. Take care. Well, that's my time. A quick reminder before I get out of here that you can find all episodes of this and everything else in the Basketball Show family on SoundCloud, Apple Music, and tsn1260.ca. Thanks once more to Jim McElvain and a shout out to all the listeners for helping make the show successful. It's greatly appreciated and I hope you'll be back once more for the next edition of the 90th Basketball Show. <laughs>